morning, church. It's good to be with you in the presence of the Lord, His Spirit that we just sang about. It's good to be in His presence with you. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors and elders here at Peninsula Grace. We come to experience the presence of our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Uh, I experienced the presence of my daughter uh, yesterday. It's the scratch on my cheek. Uh, was the glory of her goodness uh, all up in my grill. Um, battle wounds. So if uh, excited to jump into the text, the word of God, the written word to experience the living word with you together this morning. But I wanted to begin by uh, talking about identity. Uh, the question, who am I? Or who are you? Who, 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 who? Uh, such a crucial question for us because I would say it this way, uh, who we believe we are determines how we live. Who, who we, what we believe about our identity is truest about us is going to uh, determine the path of our life's journey. Uh, when I was, for example, in second grade, uh, this was when Jurassic Park, the original, not the Chris Pratt stuff, but the original came out, um, one of my classmates thought that he was a velociraptor. Let me say that again. He thought he was a velociraptor. So that determined how he walked. He'd look at you, I determined how he, he squat, he'd look at you and go, ah! like, what, I can't do the velociraptor, but it was terrifying. And, and that's funny for like a day or two. I'm not making this up. All year long, he would walk around like a velociraptor. Uh, it would be one of those fun, like, where are they now things? Like, I don't know, I don't know what's going on, but uh, he, so what he believed about his identity determined how he lived his life, Right? And maybe a little bit more relevant and, and sane for us today, um, maybe, uh, modern secular society teaches us saying, I am my own authority. And therefore, I alone determine my identity and therefore my life's purpose. And, and um, today, a secular society says we are primarily um, sexual uh, in our identity, in, in meaning when I get to define who I am, I also get to define my own sexual identity and express that and gratify those desires when I want, how I want, with who I want. And we see a world today arcing toward the necessary conclusions of answering the who am I in that manner. Uh, maybe we believe, we can believe the lie that we are primarily what we do or what we produce. And, and then we're going to find ourselves trying to justify our existence by our production by our performance. We do that vocationally. Like if we, we will pour ourselves into success at work so I can prove my worth and the salary and the, the, the achievement that comes with that, and that'll determine how we spend our time, where our energy, where our hearts are. Maybe we do that morally, that we just really want to see our, to be seen as the good guy or the, the good girl, and so we'll do the right thing in hopes that we're seen as right and good by the people around us. What a lesson I, I learned uh, this summer on a sabbatical where for, for three months I contributed nothing to society, right? And to, to learn that, man, my God doesn't love me because of my production. He doesn't, he doesn't love me because how, of how awesome of a pastor I am or am not. He loves me because I'm his child. Who we are determines how we live. And what we're going to discover this morning is the difficult but beautiful truth, the difficult but joyous, freeing truth, that the most important thing about us isn't actually about us at all, but who we are in relation to another, to somebody else. Last week, we began a journey through the gospel of John, or maybe better said, John's gospel about Jesus. 
And his gospel began with a prologue, a prologue about who Jesus is. He said, the most important thing that you need to know is who your Christ, who, who your Savior is, and he is Jesus. He looked at the identity of, of Christ, and, and then he continues in this next section in chapter 1 by identifying Jesus' followers, and namely, this morning, the identity of, of Jesus' faithful witness. His faithful witness, and I've found just studying this, reading this, meditating in this this week, this has been so helpful and clarifying for me as to who I am and who I am not as well. So this morning we want to look at who this faithful witness was and who he was not. And in light of that, who are we and who are we not? So John chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in uh, verses 19 through 34 this morning. So John, and we're not going to have the verses up on the screen, so we changed some things. We want you to get in the word of God today and throughout the week, so get those Bibles open. And don't be looking at your fantasy football team. <laughs> Baseball playoffs, I'm going to have to walk that road myself this morning, exhibit some self-control. Huh. All right, so number one, who was John not? Last week, we saw Jesus' ultimate origins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. We saw that, that before time began, Jesus was with God, and he was God. And then the, now John's going to break into to, to history, human history and time, the same way the other three Gospels do. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is the way the public arena or ministry of Jesus begins in all four of our Gospels. Now, it's important to clarify here that we're talking about John the Baptist here in John 1, not the author of the book who's one of Jesus' disciples. So it gets kind of confusing. So we'll call him JTB, John the Baptist, right? Um, this happened in our small group one year. We had a boy Ryan, a girl Ryan, and a girl Ryan. It was Ryan Bedlam. It was just, we eventually had to break them all up. And, um, but we, we see here, who is John the Baptist? And John the Apostle starts by telling us who he was not. Four things we see here. A, he was not the Messiah. Look at John 1, down in verse 19. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? So there's some representatives from their capital. The, the leadership uh, uh, sends a, a, little, a little envoy to say, John, who are you? Now, how would you feel if some posse comes waltzing up to you and says, who, who are you? I would have probably responded like a junior hire. Right? Well, who are you? <laughs> I know, I know who, who you are, but who am I? You know, kind of a, John's a lot more mature than I am here in his response. The, the reason, though, for their ask, why are they asking him in this in the first place? Well, he's going to clarify it, I think, in a minute, because um, uh, we're going to see a little hint of maybe what they're after in John's first response here. Look at, look at verse 20. He didn't deny it, but confessed. So here's his first great confession. I am not... So his first great confession is who he isn't. I am not the Messiah. I am not the Messiah. Now, we need to understand um, expectations for a Messiah were sky high in that day. The Jewish people were under the harsh thumb of Roman rule, which is just the latest in a series of tyrannical baton passes from Assyria to Babylon and Persia and Greece and now Rome. And so they are feeling in this day a renewed sense of urgency for a Messiah, one that would rescue them from physical, political enemies oppressing them. And God had promised in, in the Old Testament through the prophets, there's an anointed one who's going to come, a rescuing king from the line of Judah on the throne of David, who's going to let his people go, huh, free, yeah, 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 and rule and reign in peace, in shalom, 
forever and ever, amen. This is what they were looking forward to. And, and, and so with this hope, though, you had a lot of fakes. You had a lot of false messiahs claiming, yeah, I'm the guy. And they would, they would raise up and, and have these bloody coups and rebellions against the Romans, of course, all in vain. So perhaps John anticipates their question. Are you the Messiah or perhaps a Messiah poser? And, and he says, let's nip this in the messianic bud. No, I am not the Messiah. But even in his denial here, even when he answers in the negative of who he is not, he begins his positive witness of who the real Messiah is. So we see he's not the Messiah. Well, they say, okay, well, what about Elijah? Verse 21, the beginning of that, he says, what then, they asked him, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Now, why, why would they think that he's potentially Elijah? Well, if you look at the last two verses in our version of the Old Testament, we're in Malachi chapter 4, the last two verses speak to this prophecy. Look, I am going to send you, Israel, the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. The day of the Lord marked this day of judgment when the Lord would end evil and usher in his, his new reign on earth forever and ever. They said, before that day comes, Elijah is going to come. He will turn the hearts of, their, of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. He says, there's, a, there's Elijah's coming, and he's coming to turn hearts, to usher, to, to invite people to repent before the day of the Lord, before the coming judgment of the Lord. And we're going to see this, this echoes a lot of what John the Baptist is doing. But it's interesting here, John denies being Elijah. And one of the reasons that's so noteworthy is because in the other three Gospels, we actually see connections between John and Elijah. In fact, Jesus himself twice. Look at Matthew 11. This is Jesus talking. He, referring to John the Baptist, is the Elijah who is to come. So wait a second. John is disagreeing with Jesus. And, and I, my guess is if you're in an argument, it's never good to be on the other side of Jesus, right? So what is going on? And actually, scholars are pretty divided on this. Um, we're not totally sure. Why is John denying what Jesus later on claims that he is? Well, one, one little thing that might help us in this is, um, so Elijah, remember he was one of our Old Testament figures that didn't die? Like Enoch, he was taken up to be with the Lord. And so because of that, a lot of people thought that this literal, physical sort of return or even reincarnation or something of Elijah was, was going to be coming back. Now, if you remember Elijah in the Old Testament, 2 Kings, he, was, uh, he says he was a hairy man with, leather belt, uh, with a leather belt around his waist. So we actually see the original 80s rock star here uh, with Elijah. And so because of this, you had a lot of false prophets who would come in the name of John the Baptist, and so they, or excuse me, in the name of Elijah, so they would dress like him. Zechariah said, prophets will, will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They'll put on, what, a hairy cloak in order to, to deceive. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm Elijah. And to be fair, John the Baptist's outfit sounds very similar to this. He wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, eating a really weird diet. So if, if you're not Elijah, maybe you should reconsider your outfit, uh, John. But here he came. Jesus says he is a prophetic fulfillment of Elijah. But perhaps it's, he's not the literal reincarnated Elijah um, that, that they thought he was at the time. It also could be that John was just simply humbly saying, I'm not here to identify myself. And later Jesus names who John really is. We're not totally sure. But the point is here, he says, no, 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 I'm, I'm not Elijah either. The, the third one is that he's not a prophet. It, verse 21 concludes, are you the prophet? He answered, no, he answered. Now, he is a prophet, 
But they said, are you the prophet? Your version might have capital P. Uh, It points back to when God was speaking to the people of Israel as they're getting ready to enter into the promised land. He prophesies through Moses about a prophet. In, in, In Deuteronomy 18, listen to these words. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. That just means a messenger uh, for God. A prophet like me, so Moses was a prophet. He says there's going to be coming one like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I commanded him. So he says there's a prophet coming speaking my words. And how did, how was Jesus identified in, in John 1 in the prologue? He was the word of God, right? Um, And then notice here he says, you must listen to him. This prophet's coming, and you must listen. Now, John the Baptist here is a prophet, but he says, I am pointing as a messenger to the ultimate messenger, to the ultimate word of God. And notice, I think this line is is so, so helpful. It says, you must, in Deuteronomy 18, you must listen to him. And if you remember... On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus' full glory is revealed and the voice of God is speaking, what does he say? This is my son, my chosen one. This is the Messiah. And that exact same phrase comes next. Listen to him. And this is what's so cool. Who else is there with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. And maybe this is the literal return of Elijah that was being talked about. We don't know for sure. But, but these were the two key Old Testament prophets representing the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, that the people were to listen to. But even them, God, God says, listen to them only to the degree that they are pointing you all to my ultimate messenger. The ultimate one you're called to listen to is my son himself. So John says, no, 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 I, I am not the ultimate prophet that you were to listen to. Strike three. And back up in the prologue, we saw the opening line about John was that he himself, verse 8, was not the light. John was not the light. He says, I am ultimately not the light, the one you are to look to, the one you are to listen to. So they fairly ask here in verse 22, they say, well, then who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? Okay, so those are all the things you're not, but who are you, John? So let's look at what he answers them in the positive, who John was. Three ways that he identifies himself. A, as a crying voice. Verse 23, uh, it says, he said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Just as Isaiah the prophet said. He says, I'm going to let Isaiah speak to who I am and who I was prophesied to be. And so I want us to actually flip over to Isaiah because it's helpful when you hear, when you see these quotes, they're, they're, this is like a hyperlink. And, and if you go back to the, to the actual quote, not only do you know where it was and make sure that it was actually said, but also the context around it can, can really be helpful because um, the people would have known their Old Testament. It's like when I say four score and, and seven years ago. You know the line, but you also know the context of the Gettysburg Address and all that was implied with the Civil War and slavery and states' rights and all of those things, right? Just by those couple words. So he says that, and their minds go to that whole passage, and in context, it's actually super important. So flip left, and you get to Psalms, you've gone too far, go back right. Isaiah's a big 66 chapters, so uh, just keep flipping, you'll eventually find it. Isaiah chapter 40, and I want us to look at the first five verses And remember, this is a, in Jesus' day, the people were under Roman oppression. 
Back in Isaiah's day, they were facing the same thing with the Babylonians. So it's a dark time. It's a hopeless time. Think slavery. Think fear. Think darkness. And here are the words of God through Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people. They would need to have heard those words. Says your God. Comfort. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And announce to her that her time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So remember, their exile was because of their own disobedience. They broke the covenant, and these are the curses, including exile, that were going to come from those. God's being true to his word. Verse 3, and here's, here's the part that John was riffing on. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be leveled. So everything's kind of getting evened out there. The uneven ground will become smooth, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will appear. And what do we see in John's prologue? We have seen the glory of God in the person of Jesus. And all humanity together will see it. Not just Israel, but all nations and then the last line in verse 5, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In the beginning was the word. We see him pointing to this one. And, and, and John says, this is me. Uh, now, in Isaiah's prophecy, this was to a people who were in exile in, in, in Babylon um, that needed rescue. And the people are crying out once again. And so when he says, make way the straight, make straight the way of the Lord, um, in, in that day, when kings would go around to new areas that they had established under their rule, um, they would literally, and we're not the only one with, with road construction problems, they, they would have to clear the way, right? These old roads were a, a mess, and so they would clear the way for the king to be able to more easily access these parts of his kingdom. You think about like a presidential motorcade to be able to, to clear the way. Isaiah here was prophesying, prophesying about a new exodus, that they were going to clear the, the way for God to lead Israel, back in Isaiah, out of Babylonian exile, to, to, bring, to be brought back into the promised land and into the presence of God. But even that was just a picture, a picture of the ultimate exile, uh, 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 the ultimate exodus from the ultimate exile that Isaiah was pointing to, because a better king was coming a better Messiah, the suffering servant, as Isaiah will call him, that would lead all of God's people, not just the Jews, but all nations, out of, and our ultimate exile is not a political enemy, but it's our own sin and death into a permanent dwelling with God in the new heavens and the new earth. So the New Testament authors, they saw John the Baptist as the fulfillment of this voice here in Isaiah 40. Make way, make way, the king is coming. And that's how I, he, the first way he identifies himself. The second thing, he says he's a heart prepper. He's a heart prepper. No, not those kind of preppers. A heart prepper. Verse 25. So they asked him, why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? So why are you baptizing? Now, here's why they would, that, this, would this is probably what got their attention to come up there in the first place. Now, the Jews had a lot of ceremonial washings that they would do uh, according to law and their own traditions. But this kind of baptism, so baptize means place into. So if there's immersion going on, um, oftentimes it actually meant that it was reserved for Gentiles who were converting to the way of Yahweh, to Judaism at the time. 
But, so this could have been seen as John telling his own people when he was baptizing them, you're just like a dirty, dirty Gentile who needs converting. And in a lot of ways, that actually was the message. But the bigger problem here was one of authority. See, converts would typically baptize themselves. So when John is doing the baptizing, they go, wait a second. Who do you think you are? If you're not the Messiah, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, who do you think you are to be dunking these folks? And he answers them in verse 26. I baptize with water, John answered. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. Because I'm here to prepare your heart. See, for the one who's standing among you. And I don't know if Jesus was actually in the crowd right then, I mean, but that's the, the road that John was clearing wasn't a physical one. The road he was clearing was the road of the heart to, to, to call them to repentance so that the earth would receive her king. He said, let every heart prepare him room. Speaking of which, he says, here he comes. Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus. John saw Jesus. Coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here he is. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Verse 31, I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he rested on him. So we don't have the story here, but in the other three gospels, when Jesus is baptized and the the father speaks and the the spirit like a dove comes and rests on him, that, that apparently had already happened. John said, I witnessed that. And here's the key, verse 33, I didn't know him, I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me. So God said, here's how you're going to know this is the Messiah. The one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So God had told John, watch for the one whom my Spirit descends on. And this was fulfilling prophecy as well. Isaiah talks about this all over the place, but I'll point you to to John, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 42. God says, this is my servant called the servant in Isaiah, suffering servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one, the anointed, the the Messiah. I delight in him. And what did the synoptic gospels tell us that God says when the spirit rests on him? This is my son in whom I am well pleased, in whom I delight. I have put my spirit on him and he will, through his death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation, bring justice to the nations. The spirit is resting on Jesus, and it's that same spirit that he says he came to baptize with. Now, John says, I'm baptizing with water, preparing hearts for their king. Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit. He would change hearts. In Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, it talks about this new covenant that God would enter into with people, the covenant that you and I are in with our God. And and Jesus would baptize, place us into his spirit. This is the invitation back into actual relationship with God, which requires uh, not just a repentant heart, but a completely changed, a new heart. And that's what only Jesus could come and offer. He says, I'm preparing you. I'm preparing your heart for what Jesus is going to do. And then finally, he's a witness to the light. If you go back up to the the prologue, he he says here in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. 
This is the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So you think about in, in court, he's a witness to testify. I like this picture. It was him. The judge is like, yeah, I think you're right. Like a witness in court before a judge, John was sent by God to testify about what he witnessed, what he saw. And what did he see? He saw the Spirit of God resting on this one that he would be able to identify as the Messiah. Behold, look, that's the Lamb of God who's come to rescue us from our sins. And we can learn a lot about John's identity here. Uh, but not just who he was not and who he was, but then for us, I want to conclude our time here by, okay, what about, what is this, how is this instructive for our identity? So first of all, who we are not. We are not the light. Sometimes the most clarifying thing for us is to know who we are not. I remember when I was applying years ago as an um, ISP for Knightsey, uh, they, they kind of shadow students in the classrooms, and I said, so what is my role? Like, what am I doing here? And the guy said, well, it's probably easier to first tell you what you're not. You're not a tutor, you're not a babysitter, you're not a teacher, you're not a bodyguard. <laughs> Too bad for that kid. Uh, that helped clear, it, it kind of it closed in the parameters to start looking at what I am by first saying, here's all the things you're not. And a lot of times as disciples of Jesus, it can be helpful to know who we're not. And like John, we are not the light. Now, most of us, I, I doubt many of us are walking around going, behold, I am the light of the world, Right? There's institutions for people like you. But, but think about the billion ways that we act like that every day. Or I, I am under the delusion that I am the sun whom the world revolves around. This plays out in like the fact that I often do what I want to do. Right? How about the way that I always make it about me in some of the most petty ways? I demand control of my situations. I'm embarrassingly obsessed with what people think about me, that I'm right, that I'm funny, that I'm smart, that I'm svelte, that I'm competent, or whatever it is. And, and, we, and not only do we try to be the light for our sake, but even sometimes for the sake of others. We're, 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 man, and I think often it's out of good or at least mixed motives, but we're trying to fix the people around us. We're trying to change the people, control the people around us. And I don't know, if you're, if you're like me, I find that to be exhausting and futile. <laughs> It's spitting in the wind. We are not God. We are not the light. And I'm here to tell you, what a load off, right? That's a job description none of us can bear. And I often say, I've, one of the things I learned early on in my ministry is that I am none of the Trinity. Hallelujah. I am not the sovereign. Like, I can't even control my own life. I certainly can't control yours. I'm not the Savior. I cannot rescue you from your sins. I, can't, I don't even have power over my own sins. And, and, and thirdly, I'm not the spirit. Like, my job is not to convict you. I cannot convince you to change. And I, I certainly can't want you to change more than you want to change. And I tried that. And I try to pull people along, force people along. And it doesn't work. Spirit's got to move in their heart. And that's not me. We need to heed John the Baptist's message of repentance here to prepare room first in our own heart to receive our rightful king. There's only one who it's good to sit on that throne, and it's not Justin. And so we have to honestly ask ourselves, am I pointing people to Jesus, or am I subtly, sneakily, really just pointing people to myself? I mean, imagine the, the energy that we pour into being obsessed with ourselves. 
Imagine pointing that in, pouring that into being obsessed with Jesus. I mean, all I want from you is to know Jesus and to know his love, to know his goodness, to know his rescue, to know his power and presence. And for that to happen, though, I need the kind of heart change that can only be offered by the one who came to baptize with the Spirit. The Spirit's going to convict faithfully. The, the Savior is going to rescue us from our sin faithfully. And the Sovereign is in control of my life faithfully now and forever. We're not our own light, and we are not the light of others. But we do have an active role to play. It, we're, not, we're not passive in this world. And again, John, John's story helps us clarify who we are. So again, think about this, this witness in court. The most, thing, most important thing about this, the witness is not what they did or who they are, but what they saw, what they, what they witnessed. And, and I would say it this way, the most important thing about me, about us, is who we are in relation to Jesus. The most important thing about me is my relationship to the person of Jesus. The author of this gospel embodies that in the way that he doesn't even refer to himself by name in the gospel. All that John, whenever it's John talking about himself, he identifies himself as what? The disciple whom Jesus loved. He says, the most important thing about me is that I'm loved by my Savior. That, that his identity was completely wrapped into his, who, who Jesus was and, and Jesus' identity. Man, for the believer in Christ today, that's the same beautiful message for us to, as well. But we can't witness about someone that we haven't seen. We can't lead someone farther than we are ourselves. So if I'm not beholding the light, I'm going to be an ineffective witness to the light. And how often are we telling our kids or people around us, man, you need Jesus, but am I actually drawing from the well of Jesus myself? Am I drinking in the light of him myself? If I'm not, that is hypocrisy. A witness, a couple things, three things about a witness to be effective. First of all, the witness must be verbal. So this might seem obvious, but like, we have this, like if they're on the stand and they're mute, if they don't say anything, they're not going to be an effective witness. I suppose they could sign language if they have the right audience. But we have to speak, right? And like John, we are sent to speak an unpopular message. This is not a message the world wants to hear, and which is why we have to first preach it to ourselves. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. So that will help me humbly speak that hard message to the world around me. I'm not throwing rocks from a, from a glass house. But man, we tell the world, especially in an unpopular message in our modern secular society. We are not our own authority. We are not the light. I, I don't know who I am. I don't have the light to see that and know that. I gotta be told that. I gotta be shown that. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the risen king. Believe it or not. And God's ultimate authority is coming back one day to judge the eternity of every single person. Like, that's reality. And we gotta say it. We gotta speak. The, are you speaking the unpopular message, or are you a mute? But the second thing about a witness is they must be credible. They must be credible. The witness comes up onto the stand all sloppy drunk. That's an incredible witness, right? A, he's not a credible witness. If they're a notorious liar, right? That's not, they're not going to be a credible witness. We speak the words, but we must also embody it in the way that we live, in our faithful, loving obedience to our king. Now, a credible witness is not perfect, Right? A credible witness is honest. So to be a credible witness is not to be without sin. Ross spoke to that a couple weeks ago in 1 John. To be a credible witness is to be honest about our sin and honest about our Savior. And so 
but if our works consistently don't line up with those words, then we will be incredible witnesses. And I think that's one of the things that really hurts the church in our testimony today. And our works do not line up with our words so often. We're not the light. Now, you might say, well, wait a second. Doesn't Jesus say you are the light of the world? Right? Touche. But let me, I, I think to clarify, we aren't the source of that light. We are a light. We are not the light. So I think of us more as a window who should clearly, <laughs> clearly, shine his light in and through us. But, but part of this involves being incarnational. Christ and, and John the Baptist himself both modeled this. Remember we said Jesus pitched his tent and dwelled among us. To John, for John to speak this unpopular message means he had to be among his fellow Jewish people. And we've got to be close enough for people to hear our words and see our lives. So are we walking this out? Like, Who do you need to incarnate among this week? To befriend a, a neighbor, take a coworker to lunch, call that relative, whatever it might look like. We are not going to have a voice in someone's life until we have a presence in their life. Until we were actually modeling and they know that we're somebody that they would trust, they're not going to start to ask us about this Jesus that we're following. Finally, a witness must be faithful, must be faithful. To be willing to testify, no matter the cost. Because you think about how often does a witness get onto the stand, and they're taking a risk, because there are a lot of people out in the crowd who don't want them to speak the truth, but there's something that they don't want to be uncovered, that they don't want to be spoken to or exposed. So that witness oftentimes is taking real personal risk to sit there on the stand and speak the truth. And as we'll see, following the model of John the Baptist and Jesus, if we're going to speak the truth, it's going to get us into trouble, and it's going to involve suffering. John the Baptist ends up with his head on a plate. Jesus ends up on a cross. If we faithfully speak the truth, it's, it's, it's going to bring suffering. But then even when it's not because of anything, we're just, just living life, tragedy happens. And will we be faithful in the midst of suffering? In the middle of our suffering, will we continue to be faithful witnesses to say, he is still the light in my darkness. That he is still good, even when I can't make full sense of it. That this is still the good path forward. I think about our brother Adrian, who's up in, up in Anchorage right now, hooked up to all sorts of machines. And to see the Martin family be faithful witnesses in the midst of darkness, in the midst of the valley. Man, what a, what a testimony. We are called, you might say, but Justin, I've tried to be a faithful witness, but it doesn't seem to do anything. <laughs> like, nobody's listening, nobody's changing. Like, what's the point? And I've wrestled with that. Can anybody change? Often including myself. But, but here, I would say this word of encouragement to you. We are called to be faithful unto obedience, not unto results. Ours is to do by faith what God has called us to do, to proclaim his truth in word and deed. And we trust God with the results of that. And if we tie our, our faithfulness to, to some perceived definition of success, we're going to be, we're going to be disappointed. T.S. Eliot said it this way, take no thought of harvest, but only of proper sowing. We sow the seed of the word of God, and we trust him with the results. Remember what we said, we're not the trinity. My job is not to save people. My job is not to change people. My job is to be a witness to the one who can. So how are you this, this week embodying the light of Christ in your life as a window? As the philosopher Elton John once said, what? <laughs> you can live your life like a candle in the window. 
Sorry, that was, I, that, I deserve that response. That was. <laughs> to whom do you this week serve as a witness to? And, and here's what I would invite you into, guys. Like, let's just be faithful in the small things. We don't have to go all Joan of Arc to be faithful unto obedience. That, that maybe it's just extending to forgiveness to that person who's been a jerk to you, who doesn't deserve it. Jesus hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. Like, just to extend grace and forgiveness to someone who by definition doesn't deserve it. Maybe it's being patient with that screaming one-year-old at 3 a.m., completely hypothetically. Um, <laughs> maybe it's speaking a word, a, tr a hard word of truth. In love, a hard word of truth. Maybe right now you've got your mouth shut and need to open it. Maybe right now you've got your mouth open and you need to close it. <laughs> That's the category I actually find myself in. Acts 1.8, this is our identity. Jesus said, you are my what? My witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. John the Baptist was pointing people to the first coming. We're pointing people to the second coming. There's a day of judgment coming. Believe it or not, like this is reality. And our message, like John's, is to say, look, here he is, the Lamb of God who today has taken away the sin of the world, and he's coming back to judge it. Let every heart prepare him room before it's too late. Father God, we thank you for the word. We thank you for John's faithful, faithfulness to, to proclaim that word, even when it was unpopular, even when that message got him killed. And Lord, and it was through the ministry of this man that many hearts were prepared and received their king. And so, Lord, today, may we, like John, go into the world as faithful witnesses, proclaiming your goodness and your rescue through Jesus, even when it's unpopular, even when it gets in, us into trouble. And Lord, we know that only by your grace... Are we going to be able to proclaim that message when we're in the depths of our own despair? Father, there are days when we doubt you. When we're in the, and maybe there's some brothers and sisters, some friends today that are here in the dark night of the soul, in the valley of the shadow of death. And Lord, we cannot on our own be faithful witnesses. Would you change our hearts? Would you do what we only you can do? Lord, we need you, but we have you. By your grace, enable us to see Jesus and as we behold Jesus, that we will become like Jesus, to be salt and light to this world, a window so that people can see and savor the beauty of our God. And it's in the name of that beautiful Savior that all God's people said.